Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. The Crisis Next Door. A weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world. With host Jason Brooks. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. From the Eastern Mediterranean to the Caucasus to the Persian Gulf, Iran and Turkey are increasingly finding themselves with opposing aims. Will these disagreements rise to the level of armed conflict? Joining the crisis next door to talk about the Iran-Turkey rivalry is Talha Abdul Razak, a researcher at the University of Exeter's Strategy and Security Institute and specialist in Iraq and Iran. Talha, thank you for joining the crisis next door. Thank you for having me. Syria remains a keystone in the rivalry between Iran and Turkey, with Iran supporting Russia and Syrian President Bashar al-Assad, while Turkey has carved out a buffer along its border with Syria in its ongoing confrontation with Kurdish groups in the region. Iran's Foreign Minister Zarif has condemned the Turkish army being in Syria, saying Iran considers Ankara's policies toward Damascus and Baghdad as wrong. That came after Turkish President Erdogan vowed to go after Kurdish fighters anywhere they're found following the killing of 13 Turkish citizens by the Kurdistan Workers' Party in Iraq, also known as the PKK. Talhat, the PKK is at the center of this latest disagreement between the two countries, with Iran reportedly supporting the PKK with Shia militias. What is Tehran hoping to achieve here? I think the first thing we need to go over when we're looking at uh, Iran-PKK relations actually is uh, their historical bonds since the 1980s. So as we know, um, Iran supports a multitude of Shia um, Islamist militias, and uh, one of the primary benefactors of Iranian support has been the Lebanese group Hezbollah that has a long-running conflict with Israel, um, and it also dominates the uh, local domestic Lebanese politics. Um, one way that Tehran used to uh, support Hezbollah was actually by smuggling weapons from Iran uh, into the mountains of northern Iraq uh, through Syria and then into Lebanon itself. And the way it managed that, the, the kind of the key conduit by which it would do that was to actually rely on the PKK. So the PKK would benefit from this by uh, making money through the transaction itself. And also because the uh, Syrian regime at the time, it was under uh, Bashar al-Assad's father, Hafid al-Assad, um, they also kind of had a, an, an, under, an understanding with the PKK due to their rivalry with Turkey. So... Along this line, everyone's benefiting apart from Turkey. You've got the Iranians benefiting by supporting their proxies. You've got the Syrian regime benefiting 
by antagonizing the Turks. You've got the PKK benefiting through its smuggling operation. Obviously, you've got uh, Hezbollah at the end of the chain benefiting through arms and uh, other uh, money transfers. So I think that's the main thing to understand, that this is not a new relationship between Iran and the PKK. It's a very old, long-standing, decades-old relationship. The Iranian regime only came about in 1979, um, and basically they've had relations with Kurdish separatist factions in Iraq and in Turkey and in Syria since the foundation uh, of their modern uh, Islamist state. So um, moving forward into the future now, into the present day, um, now that they've kind of reignited this relationship with the PKK, uh, we also need to understand how the Iranians themselves have been fighting against their own domestic Kurdish separatist opposition. So there's a lot of pragmatism involved in Iranian policy and how it interacts with various uh, elements, whether it's uh, Islamist elements, Sunni and Shia, by the way, um, and also uh, ethno-sectarian and, and ethnic nationalist uh, movements like the PKK. It's very interesting, Talha, because you mentioned that Iran has had its own issues with its Kurdish minority, yet it's supporting the PKK. Is Iran willing to overlook those issues mainly to get those arms across the so-called Shia crescent to Hezbollah? Um, it's not so much as looking over the issues. It's um, Iran is very pragmatic in the way it deals with uh, with kind of real politic and 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 the geopolitical issues and how it sees its rivals in the region. So historically, Iran um, and Iraq have always shared a border. Um, they've always had a rivalry, and as the kind of the sole Shiite Muslim power in the region. It's always been at loggerheads with a number of its uh, with a number of its regional rivals. On top of that, it's also made territorial claims on Arab land, um, either in Iraq or um, uh, the three islands in the Persian Gulf belonging to the UAE, which are now currently still occupied by the Iranian authorities, uh, known as Lesser Tomb, Greater Tomb, and Abu Musa. Um, and so they're very pragmatic as to who they ally with. Um, so although they have problems with their own domestic Kurdish factions, that's kind of seen as compartmentalized. That's an Iranian problem. Everything else is a problem of one of their enemies. So, you know, they had longstanding uh, support for uh, Iraqi Kurdish separatist movements. And this actually predates the Islamic Republic itself. So as I said, the Islamic Republic came to power in 1979 under Ayatollah Khomeini. Prior to uh, his uh, revolution, you had obviously the Shah of Iran, and he actually had a long-standing policy of crushing Kurdish dissent at home, but supporting it uh, within Iraq. Um, and you know that happened th- kind of throughout the late 60s, early 70s. It led to a lot of domestic strife in Iraq. The Iraqi army um, under the uh, Ba'athists, you know, this is just before Saddam Hussein became president, but uh, he was there as vice president. Uh, they had to face off a lot of uh, against a lot of uh, Kurdish militants. They were all supported by Iran. So Khomeini took that policy and um, expanded upon it. So, uh, and if we're looking at also um, in terms of religious groups, it's not just um, you know ethno-nationalist groups. Uh, Iran has a long history of supporting Islamist opposition groups, and this actually exists to this day. If we're looking at, for example, Afghanistan. Uh, Iran has a lot of contact with the Taliban. Now, the Taliban are technically Sunni hardline um, Islamists. So they are the kind of the antithesis 
of what the Iranians are, who are Shia Islamists. So there's a big sectarian rift between them. Despite that, there has been a lot of uh, support for them. Uh, and that's in recent days. And that's purely because they want to antagonize America um, and the American uh, occupation inside Afghanistan. Uh, similarly, we see that the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps has a lot of contacts and connections with Al-Qaeda. Again, this is like, you know, b- before ISIS, this used to be the Sunni jihadist group, you know, par excellence. Um, they would, uh, you know, conduct terrorist activities all over the world. You know, we need to say no more than 9-11. Um, and to this day, Iran hosts Al-Qaeda operatives inside its territory. So what we have to understand is, while it's uh, technically opposed to these groups within its own borders, as long as these groups and these factions are causing havoc within the territories of its enemies, then Iran is willing to overlook that completely, and not only overlook, but support and actively facilitate such actions. Talha, how big is an issue of religion in the rivalry between Iran and Turkey, being that Iran is Shia, Turkey is Sunni? Um, I, I would say it's not actually that big a deal. If we're looking at kind of modern Turkey, uh, yes, currently it's it's led by someone with, um, you could say, uh, Sunni Islamist leanings, but actually it's a secular republic. Um, a lot of its policies to this day are very much uh, geared towards secularism. Um, uh, anyone who visits Turkey today will see that. It's, it's very clear. So although there have been increasing freedoms for, say, for example, Muslim women before they were banned from public office, they were banned from attending universities, they were banned uh, even practicing as physicians um, on the basis of them wearing headscarf. This is uh, during the Kemalist era republic. That was overturned by the Justice and Development Party who hold power today. That does not make them necessarily an Islamist party. It just merely opened up the rights uh, for these women to participate in uh, civil society. Um that said, the Turkish Republic, it's a secular republic. Meanwhile, the Iranians, um, they have it within their constitution to export the revolution. Now, their idea of an Islamic revolution is obviously based upon uh, Shi'i Islamist uh, thought. Um, and it has a lot in common with uh, what we've seen in previous centuries with the Safavid Empire. And that's kind of where this dynamic becomes interesting, because obviously Turkey used to be the seat of the Sunni Ottoman Empire. Um, So there's definitely undertones of that. There's definitely kind of no love lost there. But I would say that um, modern Turkey has kind of forgotten this aspect of its uh, imperial past. It's forgotten the rivalry that it had historically with uh, the various Persian empires. And um, fundamentally, if we're looking at kind of Turkish strategy, even in its involvement in Syria, it's very limited to a kind of a sliver of territory in the north. Again, similarly in Iraq, it's very limited in its objectives. It's uh, you know primarily operating in the north, in Kurdish areas, in areas that border Turkey itself. So the aim of it is actually uh, to secure its national security, to secure its borders. If we're looking at uh, Iran, on the other hand, it's very much uh, totalitarian in its approach. So um, it sees Iraq as you know, from north to south as its strategic background, um, you know, its strategic backyard. It wants to be in control from north to south. It's not interested in only a sliver across its border or within certain, um, should just say, for example, the Shia-dominated south and so on. Similarly, in Syria, it's thrown all its weight behind the Assad regime um, and it is present in almost every single battlefield around the country, which is totally different from the Turkish approach. 
So I think that if this does turn into kind of a more a sectarian religious um, conflict, I think it's more in terms of a uh, PR campaign on the, on the part of either uh, of the belligerents to kind of encourage their proxies or their their fighters on the ground to you know stand up against the uh, you know the the Sunni invader or the Shia invader or, or so on and so forth. I don't think that it's going to be a central uh, focus within this conflict. The Sinjar region of Iraq is crucial to all of this. With an agreement late last year intended to give Iraqi federal forces control over the region with all other armed groups leaving. That hasn't happened with the PKK and Shia militias still planted in the area. How big of a problem is this for Iraq and the region as a whole? So the Sinjar region is very important for the Iranians because um, uh, it's a conduit again and a hub for the transfer of men and material uh, into Syria so they can continue to bolster the uh, the Assad regime. Um, that also feeds into areas that are controlled by the YPG and the PYD, who are uh, you know Syrian offshoots of the PKK. Um, and obviously that's uh, got the Turks uh, rather concerned due to the proximity to its border, and how the uh, northern Syria and parts of northern Iraq have become a strategic back garden for the uh, PKK to launch attacks within Turkey. So that's kind of where this is kind of all, uh, you know, coalescing in terms of a conflict. Um, on the one hand, you have the Iranians who are, you know, have a long history of working with uh, the PKK and various Shia militias who, as I said earlier, want to control Iraq north to south. Um, and they use it as a hub to transfer men and arms. And on the other, you've got the Turks who are more concerned about their borders and national security. Um, and they don't want to see these areas being used by their, their mortal foe. So that's where you're going to find the, uh, the majority of the conflict. As for Iraq itself, I mean, the fact that we had the Sinjar agreement, I think it was in December 2020, um, nothing really got done. Um, and it just kind of, this is kind of... Uh, emblematic of the situation that the Iraqi government finds itself in, in that it is almost entirely subservient to uh, Iran's diktats. Um, the groups that are still operating in Sinjar are a, you know, a, a mishmash of not only the PKK, you also have um, uh, Marxist Yazidi groups who have uh, formally folded themselves into the popular mobilization forces. The popular mobilization forces are a uh, you know, they're an official branch of the Iraqi armed forces, and yet a lot of their supply, a lot of their training, a lot of their uh, command and control falls under the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps of Iran. So the fact that all of these factions are staying put in Sinjar shows how fundamentally weak the Iraqi government is, how it has no control over what goes on within its own borders, and it does not have a monopoly on violence within the state's borders. And that is why Iraq, unfortunately, is a failed state. And that actually encourages um, uh, foreign forces, neighboring powers from intervening as and when they please in order to ensure that their national security priorities are protected. And that is why you find Iran and Turkey, uh, and particularly Iran, constantly intervening in, uh, in, inside Iraqi territory. <laughs> You're listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. 
and we're talking about the growing rivalry between Iran and Turkey with Talha Abdulrazak, a researcher at the University of Exeter Strategy and Security Institute and specialist in Iraq and Iran. Talha, Turkey has found itself in the unusual position of positioning itself against the Russians in Syria while also going against its NATO allies at times when it comes to the region. Do you think Turkey can continue on this unilateral path or do you see it cozying back up with its NATO allies as it confronts Iran? I think um, Turkey actually wants to have a more, uh, I'll say, a better and closer relationship with its NATO allies. The only reason it kind of, you know, went off on its own is because it made frequent demands for assistance from its NATO allies and in its perception didn't receive any of that support and help. When there was a dispute between Turkey and Russia uh, after the Turks shot down uh, a Russian, uh, two Russian bombers um, in I think it was 2015, um, Turkey was expecting more support from its NATO allies. Instead, what it got was, I, I remember at the time, uh, one of the uh, top politicians in Luxembourg said that, you know, NATO is not going to get involved in a Turkey-Russia conflict. Now, the whole point of NATO as a military alliance is that if one of the uh, one member of the alliance is attacked or feels threatened, the rest of the alliance will band together and stand with that member. Obviously, that was a function and a feature of the Cold War. But since the you know the since the the threat of the Cold War has gone, NATO itself um, as a military alliance, I think, has been um, you know undermined by an irredentist Russian policy. So it's actually uh, imposed itself in Syria, it's imposed itself in, in Georgia, um, it's imposed itself in the Ukraine, and NATO has been pretty much unwilling or incapable of stopping it. And I think that could also be down to a failure of US leadership. If that leadership was there, and if the United States um, you know, uh, invested more in making its allies feel like they were truly allies and friends, as opposed to um, enemies who have to be kind of, you know, uh, you know, put at arm's length, um, who, you know, wouldn't be given access to the Patriot missile defense system, for example. And that's what kind of forced Turkey to search for other areas. And Russia was all too willing to give them the S-400 uh, missile defense system. All of that together made Turkey feel that it has to do something in order to protect us. Now, if the United States, if the EU... Um, if NATO as a whole were to reverse this position, I think the Turks would be all too happy to fall back into the NATO fold because that is their natural home and it has been uh, since the uh, since NATO was established. Speaking of U.S. leadership, the Biden administration made its first move in the region last month when the U.S. destroyed some facilities used by Shia militias in Iraq. Do you think this will embolden Turkey and make Iran think twice about its next move? Or will it compel Iran to double down on its moves in Iraq and Syria? So I think actually the the move by the Biden administration, um, you know, it lacked teeth to, uh, to to kind of put it in, in in a in a sort of descriptive way. The reason being is that you know say what you like about the Trump administration, and you know <laughs> there's a lot to say about it, but. Um, the way Trump behaved towards Iran showed Iran very clearly where its red lines were. Um, now, what we saw under Obama, for example, his red lines were, you know, very malleable. In fact, sometimes you draw a red line and then just erase it and draw it somewhere else, as what happened um, with the use of chemical weapons by the Assad regime in Syria. Um, he said that would be a red line. It was not enforced. 
to many, and particularly to uh, the Turks and a lot of people in the region, and this is, uh, you know, including allies like Saudi Arabia, for example, quite possibly Israel. Uh, the Biden administration is simply seen as the Obama administration 2.0. Um, his attacks against uh, Shia militias, Iraqi Shia militias in Syria, show that rather than escalating um, or even retaliating against where the attack happened, which was inside Iraqi territory, the Biden administration actually abdicated that responsibility. They said that, you know, oh, we're going to leave this to the Iraqi government to sort out. We're going to have a, we're going to allow them to conduct their investigation and to make arrests and so on. The Iraqi government has repeatedly, time and again, showed that it's vulnerable to Iranian influence and that it will do nothing to stop them. Um, you know, you've had attacks on the U.S. embassy in the green zone, uh, on, on uh, bases housing U.S. troops. Now, what the Trump administration did was a decisive response. Uh, the, you know, they lost their top general in the region, Qasem Soleimani, in uh, 2020. Um, and they were repeatedly struck um, within Iraq itself. Now, although the Iranians did respond with a, a missile barrage and you know, that kind of had uh, an impact on U.S. forces based in uh, the Ain al-Assad air base, uh, you know, with PTSD symptoms and so on, when someone analyzes that uh, from a military and strategic perspective, and there was a recent report, I think, by CBS News, um, and hopefully you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, where they were saying actually that, you know, Iran fired its best weapons at the Ain al-Assad base in vengeance for the uh, assassination of Qasem Soleimani. And the end result was that a few, uh, about 100 U.S. military personnel suffered from PTSD symptoms and concussions and so on. Yes, it was a vicious attack, but that was the best that they could muster. And, you know, when we're looking at casualties in war, what happened was, from a human perspective, obviously, it's a, it's, it's a difficult thing for the families of the soldiers themselves, and the soldiers obviously, uh, you know, having felt that effect. But when we're looking from a military perspective, the casualties were more than acceptable because these were the best weapons that Iran had, and that's all it managed to do. It actually didn't do that much damage at all. So everyone kind of wonders, what is Biden afraid of? Why is he hesitant so much or hesitating so much to engage Iran as effectively and as uh, strongly to deter Iran in the same manner that the Trump administration was? The Trump administration was certainly abrasive, diplomatically speaking, but it was very effective in uh, actually containing Iranian ambitions. Now, I do believe that if... Uh, Trump had won the last U.S. elections, I believe that the maximum pressure campaign was actually working. I believe that the sanctions were really biting into the, uh, the Iranian economy and its ability to sustain its military misadventures abroad. And I believe that they would have come to the negotiating table and uh, eventually hashed out a new nuclear deal, which also took into account their ballistic missile capabilities. However, with Biden winning, they were actually emboldened. And now they're even more emboldened because it seems to them that he didn't have the uh, the guts to strike them inside Iraq itself. He struck them in Syria. And not only did he, he did not strike them directly, he struck at some uh, proxies of theirs. And they are expendable to the Iranians. You know, that doesn't really bother them too much. Um, it's not their men that's dying. It's not the, the Iranian officers or men of the Revolutionary Guard Corps that are dying. They are uh, simply proxies of the regime. And they are expendable. So I think that Iran is going to be emboldened by this. And in fact, even directly after that attack, we had a further attack uh, again against the Ayn al-Assad base. 
And to date, that has not been responded to. Now, the Biden administration has promised a response uh, at a time and place that suits it. Yet uh, we're, we're still awaiting to see what the outcome of that will be. Talha, I wanted to ask you one final question on a very interesting narrative that has been posited by a foreign policy article that recently came out saying that most of the future competition in the Middle East and North Africa is likely between Iran, Turkey and Israel with Arab nations on the sidelines. Saudi Arabia and Egypt would obviously have something to say about that. But the author says the Arab moment has passed and it's the non-Arab powers that are ascendant in the region. What do you think? To be honest, I think that's quite accurate. Um, uh, I mean, there's a lot of latent potential within the Arab world. Um, it sits on vast natural resources, oil, natural gas, uh, minerals. Um, the population is also massive. Um, you know, if we take the Arabs as a collective, um, we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of millions of people. So the human resources are there. Uh, if we look at countries like Iraq, it used to have, you know, prior to the, the you know, the invasion uh, in 2003. Um, and even if we look at the, the damage caused to the infrastructure after the 1991 Gulf War, but it had one of the preeminent uh, educational establishments in the region. And Iraqi doctors, engineers, uh, scientists were highly regarded the world over. So you've got all of this kind of latent potential, but it's never harnessed. Um, either you have, you know, intra-Arab Arab disputes, or you have, um, you know, the kind of the Arab powerhouses getting into wars with more powerful adversaries such as Iraq and the United States. Um, I don't really think Egypt is in any position to do anything. Its economy is a shambles. Um, its military is is, you know, yes, it receives funding from and support from the from the United States, but it's generally low quality. Uh, poorly disciplined, lacks motivation. And, you know, you've kind of got the opposite in, in Saudi Arabia in the sense that their economy, uh, you know, although it's struggling recently due to oil prices and, and the, the move away from fossil fuels, it's still a powerful, rich country. But its military, again, is, uh, is you know, not up to scratch. You just have to look at Yemen and the military misadventure there. Um, they were incapable of doing anything for years. You know, against the people without an air force, the Houthi rebels don't really have an air force. They're being supported by Iran. They're striking within uh, Saudi territory um, using drones and missiles. And the Saudis seem incapable of actually halting any of that. So it, none of that bodes well for the so-called Arab powerhouses. And, you know, Iraq's been shattered almost you know, beyond repair. And as long as the United States and Iran exert so much influence and power within Iraq, it's never going to reach the standard that it reached just say in the 1980s, where it was actually a regional power. It was able to kind of exert its will and unfortunately um, had to contend with a dictator like Saddam Hussein, who, who dragged it into a lot of uh, misadventures um, that ultimately destroyed the country. But when we're looking at Iran, Iran post-2001, forget 2003, it's actually since 2001, has been ascendant. It's inserted itself in Afghanistan. It's inserted itself in Iraq, using Iraq as a land bridge and air bridge. It's managed to intervene into the Syrian civil war. It's connected uh, Tehran to the Mediterranean. It's encircled its allies, uh, its adversaries, sorry, like Saudi Arabia, um, but by getting involved in the Yemen war, by agitating populations in Saudi Arabia and Bahrain. Um, you know, and, and they use excellent uh, asymmetric capabilities. 
their conventional capabilities aren't that much. As I said to you, they used their best weapons against the U.S. At the, in the Ain al-Asad base and didn't really do much with them. But in terms of asymmetric capabilities, in terms of you know it being the largest state sponsor of terror, it's used that power highly effectively. We're looking at Turkey now. It has uh, the most powerful army in the region aside from Israel itself. Um, and even in terms of just conventional firepower, it actually outmatches Israel due to sheer weight of numbers. Um, it has a thriving uh, military industrial uh, system, um, and it's producing drones, which are highly effective in battle, as we've seen in the recent Armenian and Azerbaijani war. Um, and then obviously you have Israel. Israel is, the, in my view, the preeminent power of the region. For such a small nation, it's able to exert and punch way above its weight. And when you're looking at that neighborhood, um, is there really anyone that can challenge those three? Not in my opinion. So it's always going to be a tug of war between them. Ideally for US interests, you would want Turkey and Israel to work together to balance against Iran. And Iran is their common adversary. Um, but whether that's likely to happen while you have, for example, uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in power and President uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, uh, who are you know historically known to despise each other, um, it's highly unlikely that they're going to come to uh, a large-scale understanding. However, if they are able to compartmentalize their uh, disputes, they may be able to come to an understanding regarding Iran, especially as it becomes more of a threat to Turkey. We will certainly see if Turkey and Israel could be as pragmatic as Iran has with its own issues with minorities in its country and rivalries, as it's clearly been able to get past those for real politic, as you mentioned earlier. Fascinating future ahead for the Middle East. Talha, thank you so much for joining us here today on The Crisis Next Door. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. We've been joined by Talha Abdul Razak, a researcher at the University of Exeter Strategy and Security Institute and specialist in Iraq and Iran. Thank you for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Till next time. The Crisis Next Door with host Jason Brooks is produced weekly. If you have any thoughts for Jason, email him at tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did.